With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mysteries Abound. A collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, mysteries abound. Welcome everyone, this is Mysteries Abound episode 27 and I'm your host Paul. This week we're going to be looking at a number of stories. The first is about some stoned wallabies who create crop circles. And what was the human's role in the demise of the big kangaroo? From the mysterymag.com, the legend of Molly Lee. And from the mysterious people website, the magician Henry Moore Smith, and from the unmuseum.org website, The Great Moon Landing Hoax. Our first article is sourced from the news.bbc.co.uk website. Stoned wallabies make crop circles. Australian wallabies are eating opium poppies and creating crop circles as they hop around as high as a kite, a government official has said. Lara Giddings, the Attorney-General for the island state of Tasmania, said the kangaroo-like marsupials were getting into poppy fields grown for medicine. She was reporting to a parliamentary hearing on security for poppy crops. Australia supplies about 50% of the world's legally grown opium used to make morphine and other painkillers. The one interesting bit that I found recently in one of my briefs 
on the poppy industry was that we have a problem with wallabies entering poppy fields, getting as high as a kite and going around in circles, Lara Giddings told the hearing. Then they crash, she added. We see crop circles in the poppy industry from wallabies that are high. Rick Rockliffe, a spokesman for poppy producer Tasmanian Alkaloids, said the wallaby incursions were not very common, but other animals have also been spotted in the poppy fields acting unusually. There have been many stories about sheep that have eaten some of the poppies after harvesting and they all walk around in circles, he added. Retired Tasmanian poppy farmer Linley Chopping also said he had seen strange behaviour from wallabies in his fields. They would just come and eat some poppies and they would go away, he told ABC News. They'd come back again and they would do their circle work in the paddock. Some people believe the mysterious circles that appear in fields in a number of countries are created by aliens. Others put them down to a human hoax. Well, now we know everyone. It's wallabies. In Tasmania at least anyway. And following along the marsupial kangaroo-style theme is another article from the bbc.co.uk by Jason Palmer. What role did humans have in the demise of the big kangaroos? A fossil study of the extinct giant kangaroo has added weight to the theory that humans were responsible for the demise of megafauna 46,000 years ago. The decline of plants through widespread fire or changes toward an arid climate have also played into the debate about the animal's demise. But an analysis of kangaroo fossils suggested they ate saltbush, which would have thrived in those conditions. The research is in proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. There has long been dissent in the paleontology community about the cause for extinctions worldwide after the end of the last ice age. Central to the bait has been the demise of the Australian megafauna, including animals such as marsupial lions, hippopotamus-sized wombats and the two-metre-tall giant kangaroo. Last year, researchers dated fossils from Tasmania with the best precision yet, finding that many species survived more than 2,000 years after the arrival of humans. The researchers concluded that the megafauna eventually met their end due to hunting. Now, researchers from Australia and the US have combined radiocarbon dating with a so-called microware analysis of the teeth of the kangaroo to determine what it ate and drank. Different sources of water and food leave trace amounts of particular types or isotopes of hydrogen and carbon atoms which are deposited in the teeth like a recorded diet. Additionally, tiny patterns of wear give clues about the type of food a given creature chewed. The team concluded that the giant kangaroos fed mainly on saltbush shrubs. Because fire does not propagate well among saltbush, 
and because it thrives in a dry, arid climate. The case supporting two of the three potential causes for extinction were weakened. Evidence suggests, therefore, that the kangaroo was hunted to extinction. However, it is just one of many species whose disappearance fuels the debate. And there is much more work to be done before it can be considered a definitive proof. I'm a little hesitant to make a big conclusion, said co-author of the study, Larissa DeSantis of the University of Florida. What's really exciting is that this is one of the first instances where we've been able to use both isotopes and the microwear method to identify this very unique diet, she told BBC News. Dr DeSantis said she was pursuing a similar analysis of other megafauna fossils in other regions of Australia. This study neatly ties up several loose ends in the long-running extinction debate, said Richard Roberts of the University of Wollongong in Australia. By independently researching the same conclusion for two very different environments, the mountainous rainforests of Tasmania and the dry rangelands of inland Australia, the mystery is no longer whether humans were ultimately responsible for the disappearance of the great marsupials, but how they did it. From the www.mysteriouspeople.com Weird People The Magician Henry Moore Smith Henry Moore Smith, escapologist, imposter and magician, was born Henry Frederick Moon in Brighton, England. A former Methodist preacher, he found himself in New Brunswick, Canada in 1814, being chased across the country by a man named Knox who said Smith had stolen his horse. Though the 21-year-old Smith produced proof that he had bought the horse legally from another person, Knox pressed charges and he was imprisoned in a New Brunswick jail. Henry said he'd received a brutal kick from Knox and people who saw him during his captivity thought he was dying. He revealed a bruise under his ribs, coughed up blood and shivered with cold, and sweated with fever. His condition seemed hopeless, and after two weeks he was so weak that he was given a mattress to die on. He requested a hot brick to keep himself warm, and while the jailer's son went to get it, leaving the cell door open for a minute, Smith escaped. Eventually he was recaptured, and this time was forced to wear handcuffs and neck and leg irons. These were connected to each other and attached to an iron ring in the wall so he couldn't move at all. But they couldn't hold him. The iron collar was made of a flat bar of iron an inch and a half wide, but Smith twisted it from his neck and broke it in half, an incredible feat of strength. The collar was kept for a long time as a curiosity. One night, the jailer heard a noise coming from Smith's cell and went to investigate. At first, he found nothing. 
but then he noticed that the bars of the cell had been practically sawn through. He searched the prisoner and discovered that he had somehow freed himself completely from his chains. On another occasion, despite the new window bars and heavy-duty locks on his cell, the prisoner was discovered with a woman kneeling at his bed. It was an extraordinarily convincing figure of his wife, and the magical scene was made in the pitch dark from scraps of cloth and straw and a three-foot wooden trough that had contained his drinking water. He was chained with heavier irons, but next morning was found to be free again, complaining about having to wear such uncomfortable things. After a thorough search, a minute saw was found that Smith had made by cutting microscopic serrations in a steel watch spring. One morning, the jailer found that Henry had once again freed himself from his chains. The links were found to be separated, but they had been somehow broken and not cut. Sheriff Walter Bates, the high sheriff who was in charge of Moore Smith, never discovered how Smith had managed to do this. Thinking they had some kind of magician on their hands, they replaced these chains with seven feet long ox chains stapled to the floorboards, which Henry also managed to break into pieces. Smith subsequently appeared in court, acting oddly unconcerned at his plight, and was condemned to death. Back in his cell he refused to speak or eat, shouted and screamed, and ripped off any clothes he was provided with. Later, again handcuffed in total darkness and without any tools, he made an entire troop of full-sized puppets using straw, rags and burnt wood and his own blood for colour. The incredibly lifelike group consisted of ten players, men including Napoleon dressed as a harlequin, women and children who danced with motion, ease and exactness not to be described, according to Sheriff Bates. Word spread, and Moore Smith soon had visitors for his extraordinary magic show, from all over. There was even one gentleman from Ireland. There were other strange things about this eccentric Englishman. His body was immune to the intense cold in his cell. His hands and feet, and even his chains, always retained heat. Barbara Grantmeyer suggests a possible familiarity with yoga techniques. He certainly had plenty of free time to train his mind and possessed extremely acute senses. Smith also seems to have had the ability to make fire at any time and proved it by starting fires in his cell with no apparent means. Telling fortunes using tea leaves was another of his skills and to some extent he could foretell his own and other people's future. On one occasion, he predicted the arrival of a certain amount of papers on a certain day at four o'clock, the result of which would be his leaving prison and travelling over water. The papers arrived as he had predicted and proved to be his pardon. He left the jail a free man, though seeming not to understand what this meant, and a few months later was arrested again, this time in New Haven, using the name of William Newman. Apparently he'd crept into a young lady's bedroom and stolen one of her earrings as she slept.
In autumn 1817, he was serving a three-year prison sentence in a disused copper mine in Connecticut, exempt from the usual forced labour due to violent epileptic fits. Instead, he made pen knives, jews harps, rings and other small articles. When his term of imprisonment was up, he presented his prison keeper with a pocket knife, into the handle of which he set a tiny watch, which kept perfect time. After his release, he wandered through the states of Connecticut and New York, assuming different characters and carrying out many robberies. He appeared in Upper Canada and called on the brother of Sheriff Walter Bates, saying he had a letter for the sheriff. On examination, the letter was found to have been written in the characters of some foreign language, but it could not be deciphered. He wrote another of these strange, undecipherable letters to a Captain Brandt, but for what reason? No one knew. Subsequently, he spent some time in the South as a preacher called Henry Hopkins, and, according to Bates, had many followers. In February 1835, he attempted to rob the Northern Mail north of New York, but was caught. He escaped and headed northwards towards Upper Canada. But while in Toronto, he was imprisoned for shopbreaking and burglary, where Bates tells us there were many curious stories told of him. Unfortunately, this is the last we ever hear of this enigmatic gentleman. If he had been born a century or so later, Henry Moore Smith might have well rivalled Harry Houdini himself. A strange mixture of charlatan, magician, escapologist and paranormal talent. His feats of strength were beyond human, almost mythical one might say, as were his abilities to start fires and keep warm in freezing weather. A high sheriff is as good a witness as we could hope for in early 19th century Canada, and the fact that Sheriff Bates put everything down in writing close to the time that it actually happened is a strong argument in favour of the authenticity of at least the basic facts in this case. Obviously, many legends attach themselves to such a romantic and mysterious figure as Smith, but these can be identified and separated from historical incidents, leaving us with a record of a genuinely baffling individual. And from the www.mysteriousaustralia.com comes an article from the Australian Ufologist magazine. And it's written by Rex Gilroy in 1999 and it's entitled Giants of the Dreamtime. As an open-minded field researcher of Australia's ancient past and unexplained mysteries generally, I have never been able to accept the traditional view that the first Stone Age inhabitants of Australia were the Aborigines. Spurred on by this belief in the mid-1960s, I began an extensive field investigation in search of supportive evidence for my theory. After a three-year search, 
I stumbled upon an extinct Pleistocene course of the Macquarie River near Bathurst in central western New South Wales. Projecting from a former bank of this river at one site, I discovered numbers of massive stone implements, hand axes, clubs, knives, hammer stones and other tools, ranging in weights from 5.5 to 16.5 kilograms. Such huge megatools could only have been made and used by hominids of immense stature and strength. I afterwards learnt of local Aboriginal traditions of a race of giant men and women, the Jogans, who stood twice the height of a normal human and who once roamed central western New South Wales. In the years ahead, I recovered further megatools at other locations around Bathurst, while others have also been recovered at sites in northern New South Wales and central Queensland. The most recent megatool is a monstrous chopper made of basalt. It weighs 20 kilograms, having been found by me near Nundal, southeast of Tamworth, in the New England district of northern New South Wales. It is the largest and heaviest megatool I have so far discovered. The former tribespeople of the region believed in a race of giant man-like beings called Wollumbin that roamed the earth in the long ago dream time. But who were these giant toolmakers? Massive fossilised jaws and teeth dating back 500,000 years have been excavated by archaeologists in Java and China which anthropologists have named Meganthropus paleogevanicus, the giant Java man, a race of hominids around three metres high and of immense strength, weighing around several hundred kilograms. Many anthropologists see Meganthropus as a giant, a genetically mutated offshoot of the smaller Java man, Homo erectus, who gradually evolved into modern humans. Similarly, I maintain that the local tool-making giants of Bathurst and elsewhere were a locally evolved giant form of a Homo erectus population, and if this is so, it implies that Homo erectus has been resident here for a considerable period of time, a proposition supported by the combined researches of leading geneticists and anthropologists worldwide who suggest that a race can take up to 150,000 years to evolve. Aboriginal tradition states that the giant people had inhabited the continent since before the appearance of their ancestors. If the ages suggested for some of the great many fossilised giant and smaller hominid footprints found Australia-wide are any guide, new and startling conclusions will eventually have to be drawn by scientists concerning our human origins. I maintain that during early Ice Age times, the land shelf that extended from mainland Asia down through what is now Southeast Asia did not stop at Indonesia as conservative science dictates, but that it continued onto New Guinea, Australia and then a single landmass that included Tasmania. Recent geological findings are beginning to support my arguments. This bridge would have enabled any number of primitive, pre-Aboriginal races to migrate here. Just how long ago Australia was first settled is a mystery, 
for while the conservative university-based archaeologists and anthropologists persist in their dogma that only Aborigines settled Australia, there are a growing number of enigmatic fossils being recovered throughout the continent which question this view. During the gold rush days of the mid-19th century, when thousands of men worked the creeks over a wide area of the Canangra, Oberon, Tarana and Bathurst district west of the Blue Mountains, prospectors found many giant-sized and smaller man-like fossilised footprints and huge stone megatools in the course of their operations. They were often informed by the tribesmen that these relics belonged to Barmi Bugu, the giant fella taller than the gum tree, who inhabited the land since long before the Aborigines. As he walked across the countryside, the ground shook, they said. The vast Kanagaraboid National Park, southwest of Katoomba, is part of the Greater Blue Mountains National Park and has seen much volcanic activity in ages past and it is in the solidified ash deposits that many human footprints occur, including those of more than one type of giant hominid. My most important fossil footprint evidence of pre-Aboriginal giant and smaller Australian races to date have been recovered hereabouts. In September 1994, deep in the Canangra wilderness, I discovered a shoal of solidified volcanic mud and ash at least two square kilometres in extent, which had covered an ancient swapland. Upon a section of this shoal, I stumbled upon a giant-sized, fossilised hominid footprint impression, a right foot with an opposable big toe facing east. More ape-like than human, it measured 62 centimetres in length and 36 centimetres width across the toes with a heel 21 centimetres in width and embedded 10 centimetres deep into the rock. Two metres south lay another large right foot impression, more human in appearance, facing west. It measured 52 centimetres in length by 25 centimetres width across the toes and 14 centimetres wide at the heel, embedded 2 centimetres deep into the rock. 21 metres north of the first fossil foot find, I later found a third example, an opposable big toe left foot facing west and measuring 65 centimetres in length by 33 centimetres across the toes with a 15 centimetre width heel embedded 4 centimetres into the rock. These fossils demonstrate that at least two races of giant hominids inhabited this primordial swampland, one a primitive ape-like race, the other more human. The measurements of these tracks allowing for size distortion suggest beings of three and four metres in height. The identity of the giant ape-like footprints is debatable, but they bring to mind Gigantopithecus, a race of herbivorous three metre tall man-like apes that inhabited mainland and southeast Asia in early Ice Age times. Even larger gigantuan forms of Gigantopithecine in description were known to tribespeople across Australia. But who was the maker of the modern human-looking giant footprint? A giant Australian form of Homo erectus or some other as yet unknown form of primitive man who shared Australasia with Gigantopithecus? Homo erectus certainly occupied Australia at a remote period 
as evidenced by two fossil Homo erectus endocast skull types, recovered by me at Mudgee in 1997 and Warri Alder in New South Wales in 1999. These skulls and other evidence also convince me that the giant and smaller Homo erectus forms were the origin of the Aboriginal Yowie or Hairy Man traditions. In the same volcanic deposits as the giant fossil hominid footprints during September 1994, I uncovered the fossil trackway of a single creature, several normal human-sized footprints extending on the former swamp shoreline for a distance of three metres from north to south. Allowing for distortion when made, the tracks measure 33 centimetres in length by 16 centimetres in width and up to 12 centimetres in depth. As with the other giant footprints, these more modern-sized specimens had been impressed into recently cooled ash, which later solidified. Yet another gigantic hominid fossil foot impression was added to the Canangra list when in December 1998, in the company of fellow unexplained mysteries enthusiasts Andrew Lease and Eric Spinney, I stumbled across a specimen measuring 68 centimetres in length by 50 centimetres in width across the toes, 31 centimetre width at the midfoot and 27 centimetre width across the heel, being embedded 14 centimetres deep in the rock. But just how old are these footprints? According to geologists, the volcanic deposits hereabouts were laid during the Pleistocene times, up to three million years ago. In October 1996 at Katoomba, while exploring a clifftop overlooking the Megalong Valley, I came across two fossilised footprints of a truly gigantuan man-ape creature. There was an incomplete right foot measuring 60 centimetres in length by 50 centimetres across the toes, pointing south, with the second complete right foot impression 34 centimetres away pointing west, measuring 73 centimetres in length and 50 centimetres across the toes. Both tracks are in weathered mudstone about 3 centimetres in depth. The makers of these impressions would have been nothing less than 4 metres in height, possessing exceptional muscular strength. The Blue Mountains is a treasure house of fossil hominid footprints. Other large outcrops of giant and smaller fossil tracks have been uncovered by me in the New England district and Kararai range of inland and northern coastal New South Wales. For example, Aboriginal tales of former giant races occur across Australia. The Ilan Kapanka who roamed central Queensland in the long ago Dreamtime was said to be over four metres tall. Monstrous stone implements found throughout the region at least twice the size of the Bathurst New South Wales megatools are claimed by Aborigines to have been made by these giants. They resemble the Cratebull of South Australian Aboriginal law who also made implements of prodigious weight and size. Central Australian Aborigines still fear the Pankalanka people, three to four metre tall cannibalistic monsters who cut up their Aboriginal victims with big stone knives. A similar giant race are the Chinjara of South Australia, while Western Australian tribespeople feared the monstrous three-metre or so tall gorilla-like Jimbra. Throughout Queensland's far north, early Aborigines feared a race of hairy man-ape giant called by them the Taramulli. 
An Aborigines say that a number of huge fossilised footprints found near Maribara in Victoria were left by giant people fleeing a volcanic eruption. Their footprints were captured in the sand by flowing ash and lava to be brought to the light of day after eons of time had elapsed and their maker had vanished from the earth. The author of this article, Rex Gilroy, is a historical researcher, archaeologist, speleologist and naturalist who frequently tours the country to give lectures on his findings. His file bulges with thousands of reports on all aspects of Australian unexplained phenomena and historical, zoological and other enigmas. And from the mysterymag.com website, an article by Matthew Hicks. The Legend of Molly Lee Most people in North Staffordshire are aware of the legend of Molly Lee, the Burslem Witch. Many remember childhood games daring each other to recite the lines Molly Lee, Molly Lee, can't catch me, while running round her grave in St John's Churchyard fearful that Molly might appear to those brave enough to recite the verse three times. I can certainly vouch that the large, crooked tomb has a certain presence to it. Molly was born Margaret Lee in 1685 near the town of Burslem in North Staffordshire. The Industrial Revolution had yet to transform the area, so Burslem was little more than a small country town hemmed into the north by the bleak Staffordshire moorlands. It's claimed that Molly was something of an oddity from birth, choosing to suckle from animals and chewing on stale bread, even before her teeth had developed. She was not helped by her famed bad looks, and the early death of her parents forced her into a lonely existence on the outskirts of town, keeping the cows through which she earned a meagre living. She was a regular sight around Burslem as she delivered milk, her pet blackbird perched on her shoulder. Even before the rumours of her witchcraft began, Molly was subject to accusations of selling bad milk. It's unclear precisely how and why the rumours did begin, but local people began to claim that the blackbird was a sign of witchcraft. The local Reverend Spencer did little to abate the situation by publicly claiming Molly rarely attended church. In those days, a serious social faux pas. The story goes that angered by the Reverend's claims, Molly sent her blackbird to spy on him at his favourite drinking haunt, the Turk's Head. It's alleged that when the bird appeared atop the pub sign, the beer turned sour and the customers suddenly developed rheumatism. What's more, the reverend fetched his gun and took a shot at the bird but missed. He was bedridden for days after with mysterious stomach pains. Molly's unpopularity grew 
and grew until the people of Burslem began to blame her for everything unexplained or unfortunate that happened to them. She became increasingly unwelcome in town and apparently lived out the rest of her days in solitude aside from her pet blackbird. It was said that the bush outside her cottage, a favourite perch of the blackbird, never blossomed. She died in 1748. Molly's death was just the beginning of a local enduring myth. Legend has it that shortly after her burial, a group led by Reverend Spencer went to Molly's cottage in search of the malevolent blackbird. Looking through the grimy windows, they found no birds. Instead, they were shocked to see Molly herself sitting peacefully by the fire in her rocking chair, mumbling to herself. Weight and measure sold I never, milk and water sold I never. Rumours of witchcraft were reignited and spread throughout the town. Had the townspeople of Burslem really lived all these years with a powerful witch amongst them? What would be the revenge for her ill treatment? Matters were not helped when the blackbird became a regular sight around town, pecking and harassing people and crowing into the small hours. According to the most popular version of the tale, the folk of Burslem soon had all they could take of the troublesome bird, and Reverend Spencer decided to take action. He summoned together a group of local priests to deal with Molly once and for all. One midnight in April, they travelled to the graveyard at St John's with a mysterious sack. They set to earth with shovels. It must have been an oddly amusing sight to see a group of priests toiling away like farmhands. However, holy men or no, they succeeded at the grim task of exhuming Molly's body and drove a stake through her heart. The blackbird was grabbed from the sack and bundled, still alive, into the coffin. The lid was swiftly resealed and then pet and owner were reinterred. It appears that the actions of the Reverend and his gang of cassocked cronies worked. There are various unsubstantiated reports of Molly roaming Burslem and black shades seen in the graveyard, but most versions of the story have it that her influence over the folk of Burslem ends with her reburial. It's natural that over time, and especially given the amount of pubs in the town, a number of different versions of such a popular tale will crop up. However, the intriguing thing is that the legend in any form has endured for so long. There are no other local folk tales that seem to capture the imagination quite like Molly's. Its legacy is visible today through Halloween Dares, a play about her life, and through the claims to lineage of the famous occultist Sybil Leake. Whether witch or victim, Molly Lee's story has become one of the most told in the area and her grave a popular attraction for folklorists and dares alike. If anyone summons the courage to run round the grave three times, calling out to Molly, then let me know.
From the unmuseum.org, The Great Moon Landing Hoax. On July 20, 1969, astronaut Neil Armstrong set his boot on the surface of the lunar landscape. In that act, he completed one of mankind's greatest achievements, landing a man on the moon. Or did he? Some skeptics have suggested that those trips the Apollo spacecraft made to our nearest celestial neighbour may never have happened. According to those skeptics, it was all an elaborate deception designed to make the world believe that the United States had beat the USSR to the moon after NASA had figured out that they didn't have the technology to do it for real. Bill Casing, author of We Never Went to the Moon, is perhaps the most well-known skeptic of the manned moon landings. Casing was also a heavy contributor to a television special entitled Conspiracy Theory, Did We Land on the Moon? The program, hosted by Mitch Pelleggi, first appeared on the Fox network in 2001 and has been repeated several times since then. The program raised a number of points that on first glance seemed to make NASA's moon landing suspicious. On close scientific examination, however, most of these claims seem to fade like moonshine in the morning sun. Perhaps the first point raised, or at least the one most memorable, is the stars. Or more precisely, the lack of them. People who are sceptical of the moon landing point out that even though the sky in all the moon pictures is black, as it should be if there is no atmosphere on the moon, and there isn't, no stars can be seen. This is taken as an indication that the pictures were faked and NASA forgot to paint stars on the studio backdrop. The truth is that if you were to see stars in the sky in those moon pictures, it would be a definite indication that they were faked. Why? Well, all the landings were done during daylight hours on the moon. That means that even though the sky was black, the sun was up. The lunar surface is mostly a light grey and reflects light extremely well. The light levels during the landing were probably similar to those in a western desert in the morning, bright enough to warrant sunglasses, or in the case of the astronauts, sun visors on their spacesuits. For this reason, the NASA cameras had to be stopped down. This meant a minimal amount of light was allowed to enter the camera, and the exposure times shortened to allow only enough light on the film to properly illuminate the surface. The stars were much too faint to show up in these pictures. Expecting them to show up would be similar to going out into that western desert at mid-morning, setting the camera properly to take pictures under those conditions, coming back after nightfall to take pictures of the stars without readjusting the exposure on the camera and then expecting to get something. Stars are hard enough to photograph under any conditions, let alone with an exposure setting appropriate for daylight. Ironically, many of the conceptual drawings of the moon landing done by NASA artists at the time show stars appearing in the lunar sky. It seems unlikely NASA would have forgotten to paint them on the backdrop if they were trying to fake it. Even modern NASA pictures of the space shuttle or Earth from orbit do not usually show stars. This is for the same reason. When in direct sunlight, the Earth and shuttle are very bright 
and the cameras must be stopped down too low to capture starlight. Moon landing sceptics also point out that if the photographs the astronauts supposedly took on the moon were actually taken there, the shadows should be absolutely black. The sun is the only source of light, and there is no atmosphere to scatter the light around. In the images, though, the shadows are often well lit. Skeptics use the argument that this was because the shots were filmed in a studio that had an atmosphere. There is a basic misconception with this thinking, however. In a single light situation, shadows are filled in not just from the light rays being scattered by the air. The light in the shadows also comes from being bounced off other objects. You can see this effect from a simple home experiment. Get two pieces of construction paper, one black and one white, and then go into a dark room and light a single lamp. Place an object in front of you to create a shadowed area. Now bring the black construction paper near the shadow on a 45 degree angle, partly facing the light, partly facing the shadow. Because the black paper is absorbing the light, the shadow does not change. Now slide the white construction paper in front of the black. The shadow should grow lighter from the light reflecting off the white paper. The same effect is present on the moon. The light bounces off the surface of the moon as well as the astronauts' spacesuits and other equipment around the lander. Because the moon's surface is a light grey and very reflective, the shadows can be lit very brightly. Another argument often used to disprove the authenticity of the Apollo photographs involves the direction of the shadows. According to skeptics, the shadows in the NASA pictures appear to diverge. If the sun is a single bright light in the pictures, then the shadows should be parallel. This, according to NASA's critics, shows that the single light source was much closer to the astronauts than the sun, or there were multiple lights involved. Clearly, there were no multiple lights involved as there are no multiple shadows in the pictures. Whether the shadows appear to diverge instead of running parallel is dependent on the camera lens used in taking the photographs. A slightly wide-angle camera, as was used on the moonwalk, can make parallel lines appear to diverge. Even so, some photographs do not show any divergence at all, but the parallel shadows converge on the photo's vanishing point, just like they should. While the American flag was being put up on the moon, it appears to wave. Skeptics argue that this was caused by a breeze on the set where the hoax was filmed because a flag cannot wave in a vacuum. This is wrong thinking, however. The flag waves because the astronauts were wiggling the flagpole back and forth, trying to get it to stick into the lunar soil. Given that kind of motion, any cloth would wave, whether it is in a vacuum or not. Later on, still pictures show the flag apparently waving even after the astronauts have moved away from it. A glance at the moving video reveals that the flag is not waving. It simply had a ripple in it from not being fully extended across its length as it hung from its top supporting pole, much like a gathered curtain. This was done accidentally on Apollo 11, but the astronauts love this effect so much that they did it on every subsequent moon landing. 
The Van Allen belts are a region in space where Earth's magnetic field has trapped particles from the solar wind. Skeptics of the moon landing argue that an astronaut would get a lethal dose of radiation if he were to pass through the belts on the way to the moon. While continued exposure to the concentration of radiation found in the belts might well be fatal, the space capsule the astronauts were travelling in was going very fast and passed through the belts in a few hours. The metal hull of the capsule also gave the astronauts some protection from the radiation as well. While there was a certain risk in passing through the belts, as there is in every venture into space, the astronauts' exposure from the Van Allen belts was minimal, about 2 rem, which is the equivalent of 100 chest x-rays. There are any number of points sceptics of the moon landing can bring up that don't look right to them, but all have simple scientific explanations when examined closely. Let's try to do the opposite. Look at some things seen on the video or in the pictures that would indicate that these things really happened on the moon. Phil Plate of the Bad Astronomy site points out that video footage taken of some of the moon rovers shows dust being thrown up by the wheels as it rolls across the lunar surface. The dust rises and falls in a nearly perfect parabolic arc. This can only happen in a vacuum. Dust thrown up in the Earth's atmosphere would float and swirl around as it was carried by eddies in the air. Wherever the rover was at the time the video was taken, it was certainly in a location that had no air. Skeptics might argue that NASA took the trouble to build a sealed set and pump the air out, but this would be a tremendously difficult undertaking. It would also contradict evidence of the waving flag. Astronaut Dave Scott also did a quick physics lesson in front of the video camera during Apollo 15 that showed that he was on the moon. He dropped a hammer and a feather and watched them fall to the ground. On Earth, the feather's high wind resistance and low weight would have caused it to slowly drift down. On the moon, however, the feather fell just as quickly as the hammer. Both dropped to the ground at exactly the same rate one would expect to see if the objects were being pulled to the ground by the moon's one-sixth gravity. Even without the above evidence, the claim that the Apollo mission to the moon was fabricated by NASA makes little sense. For a conspiracy of silence to be effective, those involved must be very few in number. Every additional person added to the conspiracy raises the chance that somebody will accidentally or on purpose, spill the beans. In the case of the Apollo program, hundreds of thousands of people were involved, not only NASA employees, but also the companies who were contractors of NASA for the project. Even if you argue that most of the contractors and much of NASA staff did not have to be in on the hoax, we are left with thousands of people who had direct knowledge of the events, starting with the NASA employees that saw the astronauts climb into the rocket to the hundreds of sailors on the recovery ship that saw them emerge out of the space capsule when the trip was over. There are also hundreds of scientists that analysed the rocks returned from the moon and had no doubt that they were authentic. The moon rocks brought back by the Apollo missions are not like anything else on Earth. They show the effect of billions of years of exposure to vacuum no moisture and high-energy cosmic rays. They are also pitted with tiny meteoroids. 
none shown the burned effect typical of meteorites that have landed here on Earth. Could they have been faked? No, as one geologist put it. It would be easier just to go to the moon and get one. The producers of the conspiracy theory, did we land on the moon, are undoubtedly intelligent people who had the opportunity to research their subject thoroughly before filming their documentary. Yet they seem to have completely missed many of the simple explanations for the questions they raise. It makes one wonder, who are the real hoaxes in the story? And just before I bring the show to a close, I'd like to thank those listeners who have provided some feedback for the podcast. There were two that I noticed on Podcast Alley. That's Dave Cohen and Ben Robert. Thank you very much, both of you, for your feedback. And from the iTunes Canada store, a review by Oakley RN. Awesome. One of my favourite podcasts. Interesting, informative and always something new. I look forward to each instalment. Well, thank you. And remember, if you'd like to provide feedback for this podcast or any of my others, iTunes or Podcast Alley are probably the best places. Or if you wish, you can do it via email. And the email address for this podcast is mysteries at origins.info. And remember, the show notes for this can be found at www.origins.info. And Origins is spelled O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. And the music for this podcast came from the Podsafe Music Network, which is now called Mevios or Mevios Music Alley. And it's bye for now. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.